Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Powerful, isn't it? Well, it's a great setup for the text that we're going to be looking at specifically today, but I want to set up the, the series um, I'm so excited about it that I'm just shaking. I got chills. I don't know if you can see them from there. I'm just overwhelmed by the wonder of what we're going to be doing. We want to grow in grace. I almost made the mistake people make when they actually give their lives to Christ. A lot of people give their lives to Christ or think they do. They hear about this wonderful grace. They hear about forgiveness of sin and the possibility of going to heaven when they die, and they can't help but reach for it. And so they reach for it, and then after that, nothing happens. We all either know people or have a personal story of having given our lives to Christ and then not really sure what in the world is supposed to happen after that. And for many people, nothing does. And here I almost got us to Romans 1 to 5 where you could see the wonder of being right with God and then stop and forget to tell you what the rest of it is, which is Romans 5 to 8. I would have made the mistake of a lifetime. A preacher's lifetime would have been a mistake there. Thank God he caught it and didn't let me do that to you because it's just too amazing what happens next. The scriptures say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says, grow in grace. He ends his book with grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 of his first book, he talks about the grace of God. This is verse 13, I believe it is. The grace of God that will be given to you when the kingdom comes, when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's just grace all the way. It doesn't stop. So how do you grow in grace? Well, that's Paul's concern in chapters 5 through 8. And you have a chart in your, uh, uh, whatever it is you're holding there, you got a chart. All right, and I want to show you the chart real fast. This is the last chart we looked at. If you don't have one of those, uh, well, you're just screwed. I, I don't know what else to No, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Uh, you can get one, okay? Now, let me, get a, uh, let me get a color here. All right, now, here's what I want to show you. This is Romans 5 to 8. This is what we're going to be looking at. And a couple things. Let's see. Let's start with this reality here. Uh, we said that the gospel is where we started in chapter 1, 1 to 5. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, let me get a different color here. Let me use this one. The power of God unto salvation. What is salvation and what am I saved from? Well, remember in the first section, you are saved from the penalty of sin. That's the wrath of God. You're saved from that. That's what we saw, justification. But you're saved from more than that. And if we stopped in Romans 5, you wouldn't know what it was. So we're saved from the power of sin as well. And ultimately, Romans 8 tells us we'll be saved from the presence of sin. All three. The power 
is very powerful. It's not just powerful enough to get you to heaven. It's not just powerful enough to save you. It's powerful enough to save you in other ways as well. From the power of sin and the presence of sin. And that's what I want you to see. And that's what Paul's going to show us today, just how powerful it is. I was reading and I, I was uh, amazed when this happened. Almost a year ago, you recall when that earthquake hit Japan. And it resulted in that tsunami. Well, you know, Japan's coast shifted about 13 feet. Did you know that? And you know, it was, the earth was moved off its axis by about 6.5 inches. And you know, when I first heard that, I go, uh-oh. Like, what does that mean? Is the sun going to burn us a little more? I didn't know. We're going to walk at an angle now. I'm wondering what the heck that means. Because you can't have an earth that's not right on its axis. Right? And then this is what the geologists, this is what the, they said. This is how it said. Besides losing an hour to daylight saving time, your days will be permanently shorter because of the quake. It may have knocked the earth off its axis by about 6.5 inches, causing our world to rotate faster and shortening the day by about 1.8 millionths of a second. I have felt that. <laughs> My days are shorter. I don't know about you, but I just can't get enough in the day. All right? So, yeah, it just feels like I, I, I've been wondering, I've been waiting for results to come out on, well, this is all because that earthquake happened. We tilted a little bit, and now it, I don't know what's going to happen. Our hair's going to gray faster. Uh, I don't know. I just keep wondering. The power of that earthquake overwhelming. It is nothing compared to the power of the gospel as we are going to see that radically changes humankind, literally humankind at its very roots, far greater. When you get to something so wonderful here, two questions come to your mind. How secure is this salvation? I mean, how secure is it? Because that's what this whole chapters 5 through 8 is. How secure is the salvation he just got for us? And if it is secure, can I keep sinning? Since I can't lose it. Now, this is where the big rub is in Christianity. We try to figure out what the issues are there. So we think we can lose it because people don't actually live it. Nay. We just misunderstand both realities. And he's going to explain them to you. And we're going to talk about them. It's amazing. But here's my point. There is no way in the world a phenomenal God would perform a phenomenal act in grace, die on a cross, only to get you to this part. Does it sound like him? There is no way he's only going to get you to here and then everybody gets to figure it out on their own and figure out how life's going to go from that point on. Deal with the mess and we'll see who's in at the end. There is no way, and Paul makes that clear in this chapter. So the two questions that arise are, am I going to make it all the way to the end? And by the way, in between, which is Romans 6 and 7, what do I do about sin in the meantime? Am I allowed to? Can't lose it. You said I can't lose it. 
So there's some misunderstanding in there, and Paul wants to clear them all up. And it's beautiful how he does it. So what you're going to see is there is an imputed kind of righteousness that we get from Christ. That's what justification is. Don't forget that. Justification is somebody gives you righteousness because you didn't have any, remember? There's none righteous, no, not one. What you needed was righteousness. Somebody gave it to you. Somebody declared you righteous, even though you weren't. But now you're going to get imparted righteousness. You're going to say, well, how does that affect me? If you only, if I didn't really, if I wasn't made righteous, how do I, how do I live righteously? Paul's going to explain that too. And that's what comes next. What I want you to see right now is this main point of chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is right here. Let me get rid of this for just a second. Here's chapter 5. I just took chapter 5 off of this and put the whole thing right here, okay, for you to see it, because the whole chapter's on security. And guess how Romans 8 ends? By repeating the same themes that are all in chapter 5. That's why the color is the way they are. This beige of chapter 5, I took uh, just this little picture right here, moved all of chapter 5 to this point right here. So it's chapter 5 is... 5, 12 through 21 is sitting right here by itself, okay? Right here. But the beige corresponds to Romans 8, 1 to 17. It repeats the same themes in there. And the blue corresponds to the last part of Romans 8, which repeats the themes there. So what you have is what is called a ring composition. What you heard here, you hear at the end. It comes together in one big, beautiful sound of assurance of salvation and security in God. And you're going to see just how that works in this text. But not only security, but what has really happened to me? Here's where the misunderstanding is. What has really happened to me in such a way that it affects the way I live too? Where you don't get to just live any way you want after that happens. Explain to me why. I can't live the way I want if I'm guaranteed glory. Explain that to me. And that's what Paul's going to do. Um, remember how chapter 5 ended. I want you to see the theme of security and how chapter 5, 1 to 11 ended with verse 10. Verse 10 was a critical verse. And I want to draw you a quick picture to show you what Paul is about to say. He says, while we were enemies... Uh, let me get... Uh, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death. Okay, so that means it was the cross of Christ that made me a friend of God. That's what the R stands for, reconciled. Then he says, much more now, watch this, much more, much more. Now you say, well, what does much more mean? You're going to see it twice in chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, so it's important to know. Much more doesn't just mean quantity. In fact, that's really not its emphasis. It doesn't mean I get, get something more. What he's saying is, how much easier, how much more certain is the next part? So no matter how certain this part is, if his death certainly reconciled me when I was at my worst, then his life will certainly save me, will, shall, in the future. Do you see? Now let me draw you a little picture to help you see this even more clearly. Okay? God did the hard thing 
and died while you were at your absolute worst. That saved you. That reconciled you to him. How much more will his life then get you all the way to heaven? So here's a great picture. Um, here's what the text is saying. It is much harder. The reason it's harder is because somebody's got to go through a cross to do it. It's much harder to get you to grace than it is to get you, once you get to grace, to glory. I have to die to get you to grace. What do I have to do to get you to glory? Just live. How hard is it for God to live? Was it harder for God to die or live? Absolutely. So it's easier to get you to glory than it is to get you to grace. The real question behind it all is, did you really come to grace? A lot of people think they did and they didn't, and they, their lives get messed up, and they're not sure if they're saved or not. That's because you didn't understand what Paul meant by grace to begin with. When you understand that, the rest of it's not that difficult. So you can see what Paul is saying, and I wanted you to see that before we move on, because the theme in chapter 5, 1 to 11 is security, and that same theme picks up in 11 to 21 in what is without question one of the thickest, muddiest. If we were taking a journey, I would tell you, okay, we're on a journey, and we're about to, we're about to enter the swamplands theologically, and I need you to put on your, your wetsuit, because you're going to be literally walking like this for the next 10 verses. And then you skid a little bit, six, seven, and eight are not hard to understand. They're hard to live. They're not that hard to understand. When you get to nine, you back in it. Okay, Paul pulls you back in it for about two chapters, nine and 11, really. Okay, so you're about to get in it. You're about to get into it. I've been in it for two weeks up to here. Hour, I mean, umpteen hours, and it's phenomenal, but whoa. You're, three things are going to happen to you in this series. You're going to freak out. Okay, you're going to freak out. Your mind is going to be completely blown. You're going to go, oh my gosh. God's going to be bigger. And your life's going to be better. Guaranteed. Guaranteed, all three. All right, let's start in chapter 5. Now, here's the question Paul's about to address. Look at it this way. It makes it, makes it easier to grasp what he's going to do. He's going to say, scratching his head and he's going, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You've just heard this wonderful chapter on how this one guy, Jesus Christ, accomplished so much for you. How did he do that? How? How? Because of what one guy did. One human. One man. What he did, how is it possible that you could have all that he's promised you? And this is the reason why this is so difficult. Because every religion in the world, every instinct in your body, every cell in your body says, I don't need God to do it all. I can do some of it. That's what we said. I can do some of it. That's what religion is. Religion is human achievement. I can get to God Partly myself. Paul is just saying, oh no, you can't. 
When you really understand that, then you understand why he's asking the question, how can one man do it for me? When everything in me says, I can do it myself, I know I can do it. I can just be a better person. I can just be a better person. And I'll be fine. God will like me. God will like me. God will like me. Now, what you're going to see is someone else makes you right with God and secures you for all eternity. And to show you that, he's going to give you an analogy, a phenomenal analogy that's it's unmistakable. You will not be able to, to, to argue with. He's going to give you an analogy that does far more than just compare. Far more. But it does that at least. He's going to show you how grace is so utterly powerful that it has universal effects on the human race. And it affects everyone. Up until this point, 5, 1 to 11, you will see these words a lot in 5, 1 to 11. You will see the we, because he's talking to believers in chapter 1, Chapter 6 picks back up again. But in the middle, this 5, 12 to 21, it's universal language. This applies to everyone. No one sitting here is not spoken to. This is a global text. Humankind is affected. The analogy that he's going to draw to make his point is between two representative heads of humanity, Adam and Christ. Two epic figures who literally divide humanity into two groups. Two races. Two epic figures that you can sum up all of humankind under Adam and Christ. And here's how it goes. Therefore, this takes you back to 5, 1 to 11. Keep in your mind security. Therefore, just as, here's your comparison. He's going to use that just as, so also throughout this deal because he's making an analogy. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and you'll see this used over and over again, death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sin. Now, this little verse right here will give you all the theological food for thought you want. Let me just say a couple of things. One man... Through one man, sin entered the world. Sin is singular. So he's talking about more than just the activity of sin. He's talking about the inclination to sin. He's talking about the propensity to sin. He's talking about your disposition. You have a sinful disposition. The whole concept, the whole idea, the whole structure, the whole system of sin came through one man. Adam. And death was the penalty for that. You, we saw it in Romans 6. We'll see it again. The wages of sin is what? Death. Ezekiel 18. Uh, if a man sins, he dies. 
That's it. That's the penalty for sin. No one escapes it. Now, you can eat all the non-fat yogurt you want. Yeah, you can do that low-impact aerobics, which is really good for you. You're still going to die. Zumba till the cows come home. Zumba, baby. Zumba is not going to help you. No one escapes this. You see what I mean by global language? Is there anybody you know who doesn't fit into I'm going to die category? When I said global, I meant global. Okay? It's important to connect, make that connection. Everybody fits in there. There's one undertaker signed his letters. Eventually, yours. It's great. The proof positive that sin has entered the world is what? Death. You die. That's your connection to corruption. That's how you know you're separated from life. Now watch this. Came through one man. So one man did this, and watch this. Death came to all people, from one to all. There's your global language. Not we, all, because, look, all sin. Does that sound right? Because here's where, the, it's in these little, this isn't three little words that create all the theological problems. How did all sin when only one sinned? Only one man sinned. How did we all sin? There is a solidarity with Adam here. Adam's sin is your sin. His judgment is your judgment. Mysteriously, you are, we are all connected to Adam. You could say he is our federal head. We are connected to him. He kind of, Adam is mankind or was mankind, if you will. So that his sin is your sin. That's important. Now, you might sit around and think about that for a second, and thoughts come to your mind. But I want you to understand the solidarity with Adam, your connection to Adam. This is really, really critical. You say, I wasn't there. I didn't do anything. How am I responsible for what he did? How is his sin imputed to me? Now I want you to see real quick where the argument's going to go. And I'm giving you this. I'm giving you this ahead of time. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you. You didn't do anything to deserve that sin. Guess what else you didn't deserve and do anything to get? What's coming next? Okay? You're really just a victim in the whole thing. Now don't act like you don't sin. Okay? Because this changed you too. Whatever the connection is, it's definitely real. We could argue it all day because whatever Adam did, we do it too. Anybody in here don't? That's that global thing I was talking about. Anybody perfect? Anybody not going to die? All right, then we're all together. Somehow. You see where the argument is starting to go. So now you see, watch this, this is beautiful. It's just a quick window, but it's a beautiful thought. Don't miss this. That means your problem was bigger than just your personal individual standing before God. That means the best picture for salvation is not, hey, I was drowning in an ocean and a guy came by in a boat and a big strong guy pulled my drowning behind out of the water and put me in a boat and now I'm... 
driving into land all happy. Because it's not just about you, it's about your connection to the big sin system. You couldn't just be rescued individually. Something else has to happen because your problem goes farther back than just your individual sin, you see. By the way, in case you want to know why evolution is so detrimental to Scripture, it's not most detrimental to creation, in my opinion. It's most detrimental to redemption. Because if you don't go back to Adam, you can't see the wonder of Jesus' death and atonement. If you don't start with Adam, you can't see redemption. You miss it. Christ's gift is irrelevant. So much I want to say. So you have this deep connection to Adam. Let's move because we need to hurry. I already learned in the first service that I'm not going to get all the way to verse 21. So I'm a little bit less concerned. In the last one, I was very concerned. Okay, so you would expect him to say what I just said to you. Okay, well, that means if he just said what Adam did, he'd tell me what Jesus did. But he doesn't do that right away. He waits till verse 18 to do that. He takes a little side road because he wants to show you something. He wants to prove his point historically. How can he prove his point? Well, this is how he does it. Watch what he says. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. When was the law given? 1500 B.C., Exodus chapter 20, through who? Moses. That's when that happened. Okay? But when did, you get, when did you get held accountable for sin? In Adam. Was that before the law or after the law? Before the law. This is really important. But sin is not charged against anyone's count where there is no law. Yeah, that's right, Paul. How are you going to hold me accountable when there was no law for me to break? See, right now, if you don't have a law, how, I mean, you have your kids ever say, well, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. That's what they do, see? They say, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. All right? If you get a ticket and you go argue it in court because there was a big tree hiding the stop sign, you didn't see it, the court's likely to let you off because if you didn't know the law, if you didn't know what the law was, how could there be a, how, how am I supposed to stop if there's no stop sign? Ah. This is how you know it's not what you did that makes you a sinner. It's who you're connected to because it doesn't make any difference that there wasn't a law. Who was your daddy? Who's your daddy? Adam is. You know what? You could actually say, and let's, let's go back to here. You could actually say, because all sinned in Adam because that's what he means. You didn't need a law. You said, I didn't have a law. You didn't need a law. You had a daddy. Your daddy was Adam. Okay? That's your problem. Nevertheless, he says, I don't care if there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned. So how do you know people were held accountable for sin even, there was, even though there wasn't a law? They croaked. That's how you know. <laughs> you croaked because death is, comes with sin. If you sin, you die. Hey, anybody live during that time? Anybody still alive? No. They're dead. That's how you know, because death dominated. All of a sudden, sin and death become personalities. They, are, they become personal powers. This is critical for everything else he's going to say, and we're going to elaborate on it later. But 
From the time of Adam to the time of Moses. There he is. Momo just showed up. Mo just showed up. Okay, a little late, but he showed up. All right. Even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command, as did Adam. Remember, Adam did break a command. What was the command? Don't even retreat. He broke a command. We didn't. Our connection to Adam is what does it. Who is, now watch this, it's beautiful, who is a pattern for sin. Or a pattern for Christ, I'm sorry, not that. Who is a pattern of the one to come. Listen, this is, this is the hinge moment. Let me summarize. Before the law came, you were sinning. You say, I wasn't there. I didn't do anything. You're still held accountable because your connection to Adam. How do you know? Because you die. Okay? Death didn't come because of your individual sin. It came because of your connection to Adam. That's a hard reality. Watch this. You don't become a sinner because of something you did. And you equally don't become a saint because of something you do. Take that in, baby. It's beautiful. Take that in. How much stronger could Paul argue that the law won't save you than to tell you it wasn't even here when you did what you did? How much stronger of a point did he make? It wasn't the fact that you broke the law that you have a problem. Your problem's much bigger than you just did something wrong. So you can't go just making it all up. By trying to do something good. Because your problem goes deeper than that. Whatever Jesus did. It couldn't just forgive what you do now. It had to help and break the connection you have with who? Adam. Tell me that ain't amazing. That's amazing. You are no more responsible for your sin than you are your salvation. Paul's just proven to you that you couldn't earn your salvation. That's how hard he's working to prove you can't. This is how hard he had to work to prove you can't earn your salvation by being a good boy or good girl. So he sets up this structural thing, and this is what I want to say. This is so important here. Uh, Adam is a type. How many of your Bibles have type? T-Y-P-E. That's probably a better word because the word is typos. typos. Anyway, in Greek. Uh, I think I just wrote that. All right. Uh, Okay, so before we go any further, let me tell you this. A type is a pattern. We use the word shadow. Okay? A shadow of something. If you see a big shadow, what does that mean? What's behind it? Something bigger's coming. Listen, Adam didn't start the ball rolling. Adam isn't the problem. You don't have to fix it by figuring out all the Adam story. What you have to remember is that way back here was a big person. And Adam, all the time, was only supposed to be a shadow. The reason... Christ is so much better and bigger than Adam because he's only a shadow. That means it was always God's plan to show you the wonder of his son on the other side of redemption over here. But I can't do it until you go, until you have that fall in Adam. I can't show you how beautiful my son is. 
Stop there for a second because you've just heard two great theological truths that freak you out. The first one is your sin in Adam, you didn't even do anything. And I know you're mad at God about that right now. You can take that up with him later. I didn't do anything. You want to be mad at God for that? Great. Here's the second thing that's going to freak you out. It was always God's plan that that would happen in Adam so he could show you his son. You'd never know the wonders of Jesus Christ. And this is what the point of the text is. You'd never know just how big and how wonderful Jesus Christ is until what happens in Adam happens, and then you get to see Jesus on the other side being God, being who he really is, a saving, redeeming God. You don't get to see it. And I want to just say this to you, and it's hard to swallow. We won't fully grasp it until we get to heaven. When God acts to his own benefit, that is good for everyone. That's why what God does, he does, according to Ephesians 1, to the praise of his own glory. Because when God glorifies himself, that's beneficial to all of humanity. When humans glorify themselves, that's always destructive. Isn't that right? Anytime you bring glory to yourself, anytime humans glorify themselves, it's always destructive. But when God brings glory to himself, that always benefits humanity. Let him be. Let him be. You can already see Paul setting up. Who do you belong to? Adam or Christ? And what's the difference? So all Paul has done so far is say, hey, sin came through one man, and I'll prove it to you. You died before the law came. And by the way, he was a type of Christ. Let me show you what Jesus came to do. Verse 15, 16 is going to tell you what the difference is between the two. All of a sudden, he moves from the analogy to show you how much Christ is better than Adam. Even though they're similar, sin came through one, salvation came through one. I wasn't responsible for either. Oh, but don't mistake, the gift, what Jesus did, is far greater than what Adam did. The gift is not like the trespass. The gift is not like the trespass. That's what he's going to contrast right now. Here's your little not like. You'll see it's compared in verse 16. Uh, It's not to be compared, nor can the gift be compared with the result of man's sin. But the gift is not like the trespass. Well, what's the difference? What's the difference between those two? Watch this. There's a number of differences. The first one is the fact that it's a gift. The very nature of it is the fact that it's a gift. In other words, that's a supernatural answer to the problem, whereas Adam's sin is not supernatural at all. It's the natural consequences of the trespass are death. Many died. That's just the natural consequences. The gift is supernatural, so it's far better from the get-go. And it's far better because the gift is not only what justification is, but the basis of justification, which is Christ giving his own life. God has died for you. That makes it that much better. Because God has to do it himself. So the gift is better than the trespass because of that. How much more? Here it is. 
Now, when you hear how much more, what are you supposed to think? How much more certain? How much more certain did God's grace and the gift of that grace come from the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Oh, this is so good. Watch this. How powerful was what Adam did? Pretty powerful because it affected all of us. Whatever happened there was monumental. You talk about an earthquake that moved Japan 13 feet. Talk about one act that, de- that impacted every single human being on the planet. And how certain is it? It's pretty darn certain because every single one of us have sinned and every single one of us are dying over it. That's pretty certain. None of us argue with that reality. How much more certain then even the fact that you're going to die in sin in Adam is God's grace that came to you to overflow to the many. How much more certain is his grace? Watch this now. What you are getting is far better than what you had. That's the idea. The idea is that uh, I know what we tend to want to do when it comes to salvation. We think that Adam and Christ keep hitting that thing Uh, we sin in Adam and then in Christ what happens is it just that we come back to here you know back to zero where there's just no sin hey Christ came just so that you don't have to mess with sin anymore sin's a nuisance we just don't want to have to deal with it anymore is that all that happened not at all in fact the point is is, you know we might think that when we sinned we kind of went minus 10 and then when Jesus came we went plus 10 and that brings us back to zero kind of evens everything out that is not what happened that's why the gift is not like the trespass that's why Christ is much better than Adam because Christ didn't just take you back to innocence where Adam was he took you back to the righteousness of Christ that's just Those are just Greek letters. Don't panic. (laughs) The righteousness of Christ. That's all he did. He took you back to something else. Hinting at the fact that, no, 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 no. I didn't just make you a better Adam. (gasps) Get this. It's as if he set up a whole new human race. It's like, in fact, it's not even human. It's supernatural. There's a whole new kind of humanity here. It's as if he's saying it's far better, which is the point we made earlier, far better that you did sin so that you could become something better in the end. It's far better that you sinned and and not sinned. That's amazing. He said, how much more powerful is Christ's act? Well, is there anyone getting out of Adam's problem? Who's getting out of Adam's problem? Nobody. Then who can get out of Christ's grip? Nobody. How much more certain in Christ are you than in the certainty of death in Adam? Who... The reason Christ is better than Adam is because Christ is powerful enough to overrule Adam. And that's what he does. He overrules Adam. The judgment followed sin, brought condemnation, but the gift brings justification. 
Listen, you're in one of these two categories. I said the text is global. The only way out of the predicament of Adam is the gift of Jesus Christ. No other way. And the gift is better than Adam because the, Adam's problem can be overthrown and it's overruled by Jesus Christ. But Christ can't be overruled. Who's going to overrule him? Why do you think Paul goes on to say, to match this in Romans 8, 31, if God is for you, who can be what? No one can. Why do you think Paul doesn't call him the second Adam? You know, he's called the second Adam, Jesus. That's, he's the type. Here comes one Adam, screws up. Here comes the second Adam. Well, the reason Paul doesn't, the text never calls him second Adam. It calls him the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, in light of the resurrection, he rose again, started a whole new life. Well, why do you call him the last Adam? Because there'd have to come another Adam who could overthrow Christ's gift. If Christ could overthrow his gift, for you to lose your salvation, somebody would have to overthrow what Christ did. Problem is, Christ is the last Adam. There's no more Adams. You're not going to have a third Adam. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> this is it. One can be overthrown. One cannot. You are more certain of heaven if you're in Christ than you are certain of death in Adam. I can't believe you're still sitting. I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. Okay, final thought. I know I'm late. Just let me finish this thought. Otherwise, I won't be up with the next group. Uh, let's see. Now I'm in 16. Where am I? Watch this. Here's, here's how the gift is better. One sin brought condemnation. How many sins did it take for God to condemn? This is my final point. Hang with me. Fi to condemn the entire universe, the entire human race. How many sins? One. Now, just let that sink in for just a minute about how God feels about sin. Because you could say, well, God, you know, you could have given them, you know, any, everybody gets two chances. Everybody deserves a second chance. Holiness of God, no second chances. One sin, condemnation. But, but how many sins have actually been committed, do you think, since Adam? Calculate it real quick. One sin it took to condemn me. One sin to condemn all of humankind. But watch this. Look at this. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification, which means when Jesus died on a cross, he didn't just die for the one sin. He died for every sin you've ever committed and ever will. The reason the gift is better is because it was strong enough to deal with every sin ever and not just the one. wonder why Paul says in Ephesians 3, oh, if we could just understand the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of God. There's no way to figure out how much he loves. Sin doesn't win. And if one sin could condemn the universe... What does that say about the holiness of God? 
But if he's willing to die for every single one of them that occur, what does it say about his grace? You can't even compare them. You know how much we be and moan about what happened in Adam? Well, just think about all the wonder and glory that are going to happen on the other side when we're praising him for his grace. You can't even compare the being and the moaning on this life to the glory and in the next. Can't do it. Ah, hillside, hillside. And let me just say this. I didn't even get to the main point of this text. And that's why I'm depressed. And my, I'll take it out on my dogs when I get home. <laughs> 